Hey, welcome to True Crime Country for another episode. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. Please tell a friend. Please uh, share it on social media. We're going to try to cover different cases in the true crime world every week. Um, we want to show remorse for the victims. We want to be respectful to the victims and their families. These stories are told sometimes without the reverence they deserve, I believe. You can, uh, I mean, I enjoy comedy as much as the next person, but I hate comedy mixed with true crime. I hate it. Because there's nothing worse than telling a joke and then you're talking about somebody being strangled in the back seat of a car or somebody being bludgeoned to death or somebody being stabbed or whatever. That, that was a, a person, a human being, and they are gone. Yes, but they have family, friends, loved ones. No matter their background, no matter their history, it doesn't matter. Someone is hurting because of the loss. So we want to come in with a, 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 some reverence, respect, honor the victims, and try to tell a story in some episodes but yet in some episodes, we're gonna dig down and we're gonna investigate firsthand on the ground on some of these cases, and you've probably never heard of the case. Here in the future, we'll, we will be looking at a missing persons case out of Johnson City, Tennessee, Jonesboro, Tennessee area, which is Washington County. It is in East Tennessee. Um, the case, uh, the gentleman went missing back in 2019, I believe, and we'll get the details and the specifics on it. But if you would like to Google it, it is Jonathan Lee Ellis, missing person out of Washington County, Tennessee, and his family would like some answers. There has been a little bit of activity in the case recently. I think they'd taken some tips uh, and had searched some areas possibly uh, for remains, maybe looking at thinking that maybe he wasn't a missing person, but uh, as of right now, it is a missing person's case, and we are hoping to get in contact with the family to dig deep into it and see if we can get some answers or just shed a light. If we can shed a light and put more eyes on the story or on the case, I think that's a good thing. Now, I know some people get all bent up about true crime. Oh, they're just telling these stories. They're doing this, they're doing that. If it puts another eye or puts another ear on that case, then what's wrong with that? What does that hurt? What does that hurt? And today I want to talk about a couple of, uh, well, no, let me take it back. A couple of victims, two victims in this story. Uh, this is going to be a several episode thing. We may not do it in, in order. We may skip around, but it's going to take several episodes to cover this story in its entirety. What do you know about the I-5 killer? Do you know anything? Have you heard the story? It's more of a more more uh, mainstream story. Uh, Anne Rule done a book, uh, bestseller called the uh, I-5 Killer. It is where we have researched and done most of our information will come from this book. It is a good book. Anne Rule, if you listen to this podcast, thank you. So the location is Salem, Oregon. The date is January 18th, 1981. And it's about 11.45 in the evening. 
And the story is a larger man, fluidly, just easily, with no, no, easy. This man is in shape. He is running like an athlete, effort, effortlessly, just boom, through the dark streets, turning, zigzagging, turning. And in his wake, he's left two women bleeding to death. The adrenaline he feels, this is what he lives for. This adrenaline, he always felt it when he was on the playing field, when the pressure was on, it just coursed through his blood, making him feel though he could run 10 miles. He was 10 foot tall, bulletproof, and invincible. 20 miles without stopping. He could do anything. In his mind, he had done it. He had planned out the whole scene to his own devious plan. He found the girls there just as if they were waiting on him. He got them down and butchered them. But before, he got them to do all the things he liked. He humbled them, played with them, toyed with them, and finally destroyed them. At that moment, he felt as if he was the most powerful male who had ever lived. He was consumed with this power. No woman will ever control him again. So is this rage coming from an experience he had as a young man, as a young adult, as a teen? Is this something that he's uh, he's lashing out his, his brutal attacks on these women as a surrogate for someone that fucking destroyed him when he was younger? No one knows. But this night, the streets were super, super quiet, just as death itself. He had got in, he had got out. Nobody seen him. Hell, nobody knew he'd be the one. Nobody knew he was the one. It was cold this night, but yet, oh, after all this run, he was sweating. He stalked the women when he found them being so strong and confident they had no choice but to obey. But all through this man's life, the games, the sports, the adrenaline, it didn't match up at all to what he just felt. The monster was unleashed. This man is a beast, a killer, a murderer. The first time is always the best time. So he thinks. This was the best. This was the first that he actually killed. He didn't care. These, these were strangers. These were females to him. Females meant nothing to him. Nobody's. If they weren't dead by now, in his mind, they soon would be. And of course, these girls, these girls won't get to tell. 
like the other girls that tattled. They couldn't tell. He had raped in the past. He'd got in trouble. He left a living witness, but no more. No more would there be anyone to tell anything on him. All they could do is lay in their own pools of blood. Surely they're dead by now, he's thinking. So he slowed down, allowed himself to stop running. He walked easily now. Pulling the hood closer to his face, he felt invisible. He didn't even look away from oncoming headlights that were bearing down on him. In this devastation back at the scene, it's now 11.54. We're talking nine minutes. And the Salem Fire and Ambulance Dispatch, 911, two people were working that night, working the late shift. Zena Harp, Dave Cameron. It was a moonless black Sunday. Quiet night to them. There was time to talk. Time to complain about the weather, about the work, but just a normal day. And they were just carrying on with banter back and forth. But not after this next call. This next call coming in pretty soon would destroy their evening, would just maybe destroy their lives. It was catastrophic. Now, six minutes before 10, I told you wrong on that time. I apologize. It's 9.45, not 11.45. It's now 9.54. My apologies. So, six minutes before 10, the phone rings into the, the 911 office. Or it, back then, it wasn't really 911. It was more just a dispatch. Uh, Zena Hart picks up. Uh, Dave Cameron picks up to listen on the other line, on the monitoring call. They monitor these calls that come in. Now, the moment they heard the voice, they both tensed up. Wasn't a routine call. This was real trouble. And they heard it in a woman's voice, a faint voice. Uh, uh, her voice was full of pain and terror. We've been shot. Please help us. Well, Zena Hart kept her own voice calm. And she had to find out where these people were. It's not like it is today. They had no idea where this call was coming from. Specifics. Where, where does she need to send the help? She needed to send them help. Where are you? And a pause. Of, Ms. Harp knew that they had passed on and died or something had happened. And finally the voice came on again and said, River Road or Commercial Street. What address? Near the fun machine. Dave Cameron had heard enough. He knew exactly where the fun machine was. It was on the outskirts of Salem, near Kaiser. And he could pinpoint the location enough to dial the telephone operator and ask for emergency trace. So now they're getting a trace on the line, emergency trace back to where it was pin to pinpoint the location. He had to get close enough, so he was not close enough to do that. Now, the call was coming in from the Trans-America Title 
building. Now the call goes into Salem's Police Department Communication Center and they dispatched paramedics from the Kaiser Fire Department and an ambulance to the building where the women were laying in their own pools of blood dying. Now at the same time this was all going on, Zena Harp continued to talk to the terrified woman. Please hurry, the girl begged. He's going to come back and he's going to kill me. I think she's dead. Miss Harp done her best to sue the young woman stand on the line. Ambulance is on the way. And the girl on the other end was drifting in and out. Her voice was just very faint at this point. She keeps saying, I think she's dead. Now, they had patched over at this point to the Salem Police Department dispatcher. This young woman's name was Liz Cameron, the comp center operator for the Salem Police Department. Now, she also spoke to the, the woman in the Trans-American Title Building. You know, there wasn't any time to, to guess or to speculate on why anyone would be in the office this late or whatever. It's a Sunday evening. Liz knew that the ambulance and Marion County Sheriff's Squad cars, they were on their way. But she had to find out as much as she could. Maybe there's a gunman in the building. Maybe there's two gunmen. Maybe there's three outside. Maybe he was outside. Maybe he's going to sap, you know, ambush them when they come in. So Liz Cameron begins to ask, what's your name? Beth Wilmot. I've been shot in the head. Hurry. We have an ambulance on the way. Who shot you? We'll be right back. All right, guys, thanks for coming back. Where had we left off? They had finally got the woman's name, Beth Wilmot. Liz Cameron from the Salem's Police Department Comp Center was trying to get as much information as she could as to find out who shot them, where they were, what happened. As fire, ambulance, and police approached the building. Some man, she says, I don't know, with a gun. We were cleaning the office and he came in. Of course, she, the, Liz keeps letting the girl know we have somebody on the way. What did he look like? Uh, had brown hair, dark brown hair, and he had a Band-Aid on his nose. Was he white? Yes. How old? I don't know. Maybe 25 to 27. How tall? 5'9", uh, 6 foot. I don't know. 5'9". Over average size. What was he wearing? Now, to me or you, these questions sound like, damn, bitch, leave her alone. She's dying. Just keep her calm. But she was sending people into an area where they might be perfect targets. And if she did pass on, she needed as much information to catch this woman's brutal killer if they could. They had to know their enemy. They had to know what was going on. She sounded weak, but rational. Now, later on, Liz Cameron from Salem Police Department Comp Control Center, she would marvel at this woman's ability to respond when she had learned the extent 
of this poor woman's injuries. Do you remember what he was wearing? Uh, a coat, a coat, leather, a leather coat, a pair of cheap jeans. Okay, okay, stay on the phone, Liz, calms, calms her down. Ambulance is coming. Fire is coming. Police is coming. This woman wants Liz to call a number, to call home, to let them know that they're okay. She's worried about her family. Let's just keep you on the line, hon, until a deputy arrives and makes sure you're okay. This woman was shot in the head. I need the ambulance. And she needs the ambulance. She's been shot in the head. She thinks her friend is dead, but who was the friend? Then Liz hears the woman say, poor Sherry is going to die. The lady who was shot. The police dispatcher thought that Beth was talking about her own injuries, but she was not. She was talking about her friend. Trying to know if her friend was dead. So she keeps her on the phone, and that's probably what saved her life, keeping her talking, keeping her keeping her talking, keeping her awake, keeping her alert. She didn't get to see much of the killer because the killer had instructed them to put her head down, put their head down. He shot them in the back of the head with their heads down like a coward, like a sorry piece of shit. So she couldn't get a good look at him. She didn't know what happened. The ambulance finally arrives. The police finally arrive. Fire finally arrives. What do they find? Well, the Transamerica title building from which that call had come from was only one of several in the business complex on River Road. So I'll give you a little background of the area. The area just beyond Salem City Limits. Now this complex, it was a new construction of modern buildings, businesses, you know, separated by parking areas, little parking lots. Now on a weekday, the region would have been full of people, but on a, on a Sunday, the entire complex seemed empty and deserted. Uh, even there was a little eating place there nearby, it was closed. People were home for the weekend. People were relaxing, resting. Now, now, aside from the two girls that were in the Transamerica building, only a handful of people were in the entire complex. Now, there was two women that worked in the back room of a place called Celebration Design. It was a bridal shop almost directly across the parking lot from the entrance to the Transamerican offices. Her name was Dorothy Hall, the owner of the custom bridal gown shop. You know, she was in, she had no choice to work. She had some promises. She had some, made some, some dresses. She had to get finished. So she was in the sewing room. She was working that late afternoon. Um, one of her other workers, a seamstress named Bev Johnson, worked with her, and there was Mrs. Hall's daughter, Patrice Walters. Now, she had promised to come in later, so there's supposed to be three people there. We know of two. Now, Mrs. Hall felt a little easy all after, on afternoon. She, you know, you get that gut feeling. You feel like, ah, something's wrong, something's wrong. And she had made a comment to her other worker, you know, the how loomy and spooky it just seemed, just eerie. It had almost an eerie feel to it. Evil was in the mist. Everybody was gone. It was just a modern-day ghost town. Just emptiness, gloom. Every now and then you see a headlights of a car passing by. 
So at this point, she starts to regret that she had asked her, her daughter to come down to work alone. So they stayed. Now, when her daughter arrived, she was, Miss Hall was surprised to announce, of course, it was a quarter after nine. The gowns are almost finished at this point. And Patrice, the daughter, said, you know, she would stay and put the finishing touches on. They chatted for a few minutes. And she heard the news broadcast come on the back, in the back room. They're watching a little TV there. So that's how she knew the time when she left. 9.30. So she did eventually leave. Um, but not before she said lock the doors, turn off the lights. So the one, women had stayed because they had the gloomy feeling and finished most of the work themselves. They did kind of shake it off and let Patrice finish what was left there and was getting ready to leave the building. Now, as she was walking to her car, she was exhausted, ready to just to go. She saw a reddish four-wheel drive vehicle with its motor running parked on the south side of the Trans-America building. This was a, a peculiar vehicle to her. She knew her daughter was alone, mixed with this gut shit feeling she had all day. She was disturbed as she drove away from the area. Disturbed enough that she turned around and come back. She saw the lights on in the Trans-America building. She drove slowly around the structure to see if anyone was inside. It was easy to see inside this building. The building had windows from wall to floor to ceiling on all four sides, and the windows were fronting the parking lot, had only the curtains on them were tied back. So the curtains that were on some windows were pulled open and tied back. But now she drove back around. She noticed that the windows on the river roadside were covered by blinds now. But even with the blinds, it was possible to see every part of this building from outside. All except the employees' lunchroom. Now this truck was empty, she's seen. It was odd that it should be sitting there empty with its motor running. But then Miss Hall suddenly looked into the Transamerica building and, and she was suddenly relieved. She saw two young girls dressed in old clothes, obviously a janitorial crew. Phew, she thought. One of the girls was down on her hands and knees scrubbing the foyer of the building and the other stood beside her with a broom in her hand. The front door of this building was closed and presumably locked. The bridal shop owner, finally, she could conclude that the unfamiliar truck belonged to the girls who were cleaning. She eased her car out of the mall. She saw no one else, no one walking, no other cars. The area north of the complex was deserted except for two boys she saw cleaning the floors of an ice cream parlor. So the girl's truck was running. The girl's truck was running because they had finished. They were done. They went out to crank the vehicle and they were in there to make some final 
little touch-ups on what they had seen, a smudge on a glass, a spot on the floor, whatever it may be. Now, the only thought that stuck in Miss Hall's head was that the boys were moving vigorously as they swabbed the ice cream floors and the girls in the Transamerica building seemed like frozen statues in comparison. Had Miss Hall seen the very moment that the man, the beast, the monster had pulled his weapon and taken these girls hostage, taken them captive, taken them for his own pleasure, did she visualize this? Could she have been a victim? How close? She was close. She was close. She's very lucky to have gotten out of there with her life. But these two women were now hostages of a fucking maniac. She drives home. It's 9.35. So we know what time. At 9.45, all hell breaks loose. There's broken loose. Now, Patrice, the daughter, she's back there sewing. She's doing her thing. She had the radio turning low, and she heard a loud bang somewhere between 9.30 and 10 o'clock. It sounded as if someone had slammed the lid to the dumpster. She wondered who else might be in the area. But it didn't concern her so much. She was involved in her work. The building was locked. Eh, it'll be all right. It's what we always think. Uh, not me. It'll be all right. Not me. Won't happen to me. Now, when she left at 10.30, 10.30, she heard sirens in the distance, then closer and closer and closer. More startling, the parking lot in front of the Trans-America Title Building was already covered in flashing blue and red lights. She saw aid cars, ambulances, county sheriffs, uh, deputies, you name it, they were there. What had happened? Now, on the, the last half hour that Patrice was there, she just sewed and she was unaware of what was going on outside of the darkened shop. The, of course, the radio channels of the police department had been alive with communications back and forth. Beth Wilmot's first call had been monitored six minutes to ten. The patrol deputies. Voices responding to comm center's request for their locations begin to cut in at three minutes to ten. It goes out like this. Roger 9 and 112. We have a shooting at the Trans-America title at River Road in Cherry. It is unknown circumstances. The fire department called it in. They're in route. Now, evidently, the victim was cleaning the office when a male subject came in. Now, fire advises the sheriffs that she was shot in the head. Suspect description is white male, 27, 5 feet 9, brown hair, wearing a leather coat and jeans, has a Band-Aid on his nose. Now, that's little information, but the information is precious. The officer's going into an unknown situation where the suspect is armed with a gun, but that was all Liz Cameron had been able to elicit from Beth Wilmot. If the man was still in the building, a building with windows on all four sides, no deputy going in would have a chance. But a wounded victim, probably two victims. There is two victims. No deputy had a choice 
Praise God for heroes. Now, Greg Roach was the first deputy to arrive at the Trans-America Title Building. He made the River Road address in a minute and a half with blue lights just blaring and sirens blaring and lights of flashing. The aid unit from the Kaiser Fire Department had arrived 30 seconds earlier, so one minute. That's really nice. One of the emergency vehicle uh, emergency medical technicians had ran over to give him consultation. There's someone moving around in the building. Now, as he looked, he saw a naked female in the main portion. She was walking toward a smaller office located in the southwest corner of the building. When he looked in that direction, he saw a second young woman lying on the floor in a prone position. She was also nude. Her face turned away from his view, but he could see a spreading pool of blood around her head. For just a split second, he felt as if he was viewing a movie screen showing a horror film instead of reality. Wait outside. Drew his service revolver. revolver entered the building. Dared not wait for backup and other deputies. The women inside might die if he did. This was an intense situation, you can imagine. You can imagine. He clears the building. Rooms were empty. Signal paramedics to come in. Sergeant Will Hingston in Unit 112 arrived 60 seconds after Deputy Roach. Within minutes, the building was surrounded by every Marion County officer available in that section of the county. Deputies Bernie Papafus, Frank Crandall, Don Dolan, John Braun, Detectives Dave Kamenick and Jay Boutwell, Lieutenant Kilburn McCoy, Captain Rich Richard Bay, and Undersheriff Robert Prinslow. Heroes! Remember those names. I'm not giving you the name of this old killing murderous son of a bitch. We'll get to it, but he's a no-name bastard. The Kaiser Fire Chief, John Sanford, and his emergency medical technicians and paramedics advised the lawmen that there seemed to be two grievously wounded young women. Beth Wilmot was in shock. She was the one alive, making the phone call. She was unaware she was nude. She was shot in the head, for God's sake. Covered her with the blanket. Was that the right thing? I don't know. What do you do in this situation? Is there evidence there to collect to capture this bastard? Do you cover a poor woman? See, here's the thing. Up until death, it is a life-saving procedure. Do you think about saving evidence, saving this? Say, no. You do if it's within line of life-saving techniques. You save that life. And that's what they've done here. Saving that life. Now, her injuries were severe. She was shot in the head. This is victim number one, Beth Wilmot. Remember that name. A victim in this tragic story. One of her eyes were blackened, and the right side of her face was oddly swollen and bruised. Blood oozed from a spot near her right ear. She's been shot in the head. Deputy Bernie Pappenfuss was assigned to ride in the ambulance with Beth as she was rushed to Salem Memorial Hospital. The other victim, Beth said her name was Sherry Hall. She was in much worse shape. 
she was comatose. And the Kaiser paramedics found that she had sustained three wounds to the head. Wounds that were caused by bullets. Her vital signs were too faint to measure. The medics shook their head as they attempted to find some ignitation that the slender, beautiful girl might have survived. They bagged her, forced oxygen into her lungs as she was lifted onto a gurney and wielded rapidly toward the ambulance. She was accompanied by Detective Boutwell, Hero, Deputy Dolan, Hero, Sherry, too, was rushed to Salem Memorial. I emphasize the heroes and the poor victims in this story, Beth Wilmot and Sherry Hall. Victims. Both of them almost dead. One of them still talkative, coherent to a certain level. Oddly, Beth remained coherent, amazingly coherent. Now, as she rode in the ambulance, she was able to tell Deputy Pappenfuss that she and her amazing, wonderful friend, Sherry Hull, they cleaned the Transamerica building every Sunday. Carrie, Sherry, or sorry, Beth quotes, we were almost finished, or tells detectives, we were almost finished. Sherry went outside to her car, and I had a little cleaning left to do. I was just rounding a corner going toward the entrance when I saw Sherry and this man walking toward me. He had a long-barreled gun in his right hand. He took us to a room and told us to take off all her clothes that he wouldn't hurt us. He made us lie down on the floor. We did that, and then he shot Sherry in the head. And then he shot me. I pretended to be dead, and I could hear Sherry moaning. Then I heard another shot and heard him, the man, leave. When I was pretty sure he was gone, I crawled to the phone in the office and called the fire department. This woman, barely hanging on to life, calls for help. What had he done before? She was re reminiscing of the, the act of when they were shot. Well, what did this man do to them before he shot them? What torturous acts did he cause them to do? So they want to know if they ever seen the man. You know, no. Did he molest, bother either of you? Did he rape you? No, Beth says. The girl whispered and added somewhat obscure. She said, no, I never touched him. Now, obviously something had happened, but what had happened? You know, the shock, she was in shock. She was in no place really to give any information, but thank God she had some, and thank God she was able to tell what she did know about the shooting. Um, she wasn't probably yet ready to tell anyone what the man had done to them, and rightfully so, you know. So, Detective Pappenfuss sensed the rape and Beth. They were both nude, and, you know, she was shaken from the shock. She, she, she wasn't ready to tell that part yet. But she was also angry that this stranger could have shot her and Sherry. She wanted to give a description again. White man, mid-twenties, 5 feet 11 to 6 feet, slender build, dark brown hair, hooded black leather waist-length jacket, band-aid, a band-aid on his nose. 
Wasn't sure about the gun. Wasn't familiar with guns, Beth wasn't. Papenfuss made a move to show her his own service weapon for comparison purpose, purposes, which I'm sorry, to Mr. Pappas, Papapus, Papupus, Papenfuss, not a good idea that someone's just been shot in the head. Of course, what does Beth do? Starts to go into acting hysterically. Why wouldn't she? She's just been shot with a gun. Why the hell she will see a gun? He made a mistake. It happens. Put it back in his holster. Thank God. That was over. So, what had happened to the girls? What, what, or what kind of ordeal had they went through? At this point, we've got one alive, Beth Wil Wilmot, Wilmot. And Sherry Hall is now dead. 20 year old, died in the emergency room at Salem Memorial Hospital at 1.20 a.m. She never regained conscious. Bernie Pappenfuss is the detective that rode or the deputy, whatever. He keeps coming back to a thought that he had, a memory, uh, a recent memory. While he was racing to the Transamerica building on, on a Code 3 call, he had rounded the corner of Broadway and Pine Street at about four minutes after 10. He had just heard the description of the subject given by the dispatcher, the same description that Beth would repeat to him later in the ambulance. At that moment, as he turned this corner, he seen a man standing in a well-lit area only about 10 feet from his patrol car. The man had stared back at him boldly, almost challenging him. It was only one of those moments that are over almost within a split second, you know, but they etched themselves in your mind. The man had worn jeans and a fleece jacket, but Pappenfuss had the impression that the jacket was turned inside out. The corner that he'd seen this man was 1.2 miles from the shooting scene. Only an athlete could run so far in a short time since the first call for help had come in, but it was possible to cover a... Sorry about that. I had a glitch in my system. I tried to... And even my editing skills suck because I couldn't get it edited out. My finger's too fat or something. I can't figure it out. I'm no good. Sorry. We are gra grassroots in this mug. So anyway, when I was cut off, Pap Pappenfuss had seen a man about 1.2 miles away. Uh, could be done on foot. Athlete running that far, that amount of time. Um, the It looked like he'd had his jacket turned inside out to give uh, to appearance that looked like some kind of cloth jacket. Um, but reliving that, Pappenfuss felt now that he had stared into the eyes of the killer, but now that killer was long gone. The doctors that treated Beth Wilmot looked at the uh, slender young girl, uh, seemed a little younger than her age, uh, that she gave them 20, and marveled that she was still alive. Her condition was critical. Now, when they had finally cleaned her up and washed the blood away from her face and hair, the doctors found a 
of flattened slug, probably a 32 caliber bullet nestled in the matted hair at the back of her head. It had not penetrated the skull, but the force from the bullet would have been powerful enough to knock her off her feet. The ammunition might have been old, or it might have been fired from the gun of, a, of the wrong caliber, but or, or Beth Wilmot might be one of the most rare individuals whose skull density is thicker than normal. Thick enough to protect the brain, even against a bullet. Thank God for miracles. I'm a, I'm a God believer. I'm not saying any particular God, but I believe the forces of Mother Earth, our Heavenly Father, that day said no. Whether it be a wrong caliber but gun firing a bullet, whether it be old, whether it be whatever, whatever little plans were laid in place years before that caused this killer to pick up this ammo, this killer to pick up this gun, this killer to fire this into the head of victim Beth Wilmot that day. No, sir, it wasn't happening. She survived. She survived. X-rays indicated that there was a second bullet, a slug that had penetrated the scalp at the back of Beth Wilmot's head, but again, not the skull. This bullet had only plowed a furrow beneath the skin on the right side of her head and come finally to rest just in front of her ear. Her ear sorry. Beth Wilmot had beaten death twice. Dr. Robert Booza removed the second bullet and turned it to, into evidence over to Jay Boutwell, who entered it into evidence along with the first bullet found in her hair. Now, Beth had denied the gunman had sexually attacked her or Sherry when she gave her first statement. But swabs used to check for presence of semen in the mouth, rectum, and vaginal vaults of the two victims. These swabs were then saturated with acid phosphatates and the telltale bright pinkish purple reaction that indicates the presence of male ejaculation appeared on the swab from Beth's throat. The killer had ejaculated into her mouth. Now Beth had not lied Beth had only denied the memory of that nightmare she had endured. Later, she would remember, and she wished that she had not. Now, Dave Kamenick was one of the two detectives on call that night in January. He had already responded to the, the homicide scene earlier. I'd mentioned his name. Now, he summoned to the shooting scene. Jay Boutwell was at the hospital, and Kamenick, would remain at the Trans-America building to process the crime scene. Now, Dave Kamenick and Jay Boutwell will be names that you hear throughout this story. But what we have right here is the first killings of a man that would stretch up and down the I-5 corridor, raping, killing, and murdering many, 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 many people. In the next episode, I'll introduce you to Jay Boutwell and Dave Kamenick and who they are and how they've already made a name for themselves in homicide in this area. A little preview, Kamenick is a compactly muscled, intense man still in his 30s. He can seem deceptively easygoing off the job, but Dave Kamenick was a detective who had already been involved in most of Marion County's most intricate homicide probes, and the county situated in the idyllic Willamante Valley 
had had several bizarre murders in the past half dozen years. Not easy to solve, but solved. Married, father of two sons, Kalanick does not come from a family of lawmen, nor did he grow up with a burning ambition to be a cop. He looked upon law enforcement initially as just another job. It was a way to become, it was just like a way of life for him. Now, Kalanick speaks with an Oregon drawl, a pattern of speech common to the area around Salem, an accent like that sounds almost southern to the untrained ear. Like many Oregon detectives, Kalanick wears cowboy boots, although the Old West lives in most of Oregon's only in history books. The band of his hat is real rattlesnake. He traps the snakes himself and fashions the distinctive bands. He skis both snow and water. In his spare time, plays tournament golf. He builds his family home from the ground up. But his true love is police work. Born in Nebraska, Comic moved to Salem with his family. He's 10 years old, so he grew up there, middle of three boys. 100% Czechoslovakian on both sides, mom and dad, he comments. Graduates high school in 1964, gets married, um, joins the Air Force, sent to Vietnam on a flight crew. Um, he's a loadmaster on the four-engine turboprop C-130s. After Vietnam, Kalmanick was assigned to South Carolina base where he served two more years on a flight crew. Uh, and both the son was born, one son was born while they were in South Carolina. Back in Oregon now, after his service stint, Kalmanick attends Oregon State University for three years, engineering and business courses, but police work was the furthest thing from his mind at this time. Who is Dave Kalmanick? Detective on this brutal, brutal, brutal murder. One of the detectives. We'll get into the other detective next week and the rest of the case. We will finish up the victim's story next week and go into another story that involves this hooded athlete monster. So the things I want you to take away from this story is I want you to remember Beth Wilmot and Sherry Hull. These are two victims, two victims, one dead, one alive, both victims. This is the beginning story of the I-5 killer. This is another episode of True Crime Country. Hear me next week. Thanks.